Have you ever found yourself lost in your work? You look up and a couple hours have gone by. What about days in which you feel you did nothing but answer email and actually did nothing, got nothing done at all? Well, all this is discussed in Cal Newport's Deep Work, which we review today on Business Book Club. Welcome into Business Book Club series on suburban small business. I am Stephen Payton, and with me, I have my co-host, Stephen O'Byrne. O'Byrne, have you ever found yourself lost in a spreadsheet? I have, actually, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know, especially in like public accounting days, like when you're doing a big section and you know that's all you're going to be doing that day, like I feel like those days went by way faster than like the days where you're doing a bunch of little stuff. Oh, too fast, especially when you're you're working under a deadline and the time just blows by when when you get really deep into something. Yeah, I I know that. Um, so that's called flow state uh, for those who aren't familiar, um, but. Uh, he and Cal Newport talks about it in his book, um, Deep Work, uh, at, that flow is part of deep work, essentially. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, so um, overview, uh, let's go let's go into right into our system of review, uh, which, as we mentioned last time, is was it worth it? Because uh, we're bad at one to five stars. Um, so, uh, it's $15 on Amazon and I like to look at the audiobook length because uh, especially for nonfiction, a 300 page book could actually be a 200 page book because a hundred pages of it is just references. So um, in this case, the audiobook length is seven hours and 45 minutes. So would you say that reading this book or listening to this book was worth it for $15 and eight hours of your time? Yes. Yes. For me, it was. In fact, I, I know we factor in price. After reading this book, I would recommend it for three times the price, honestly. For sure. I, I feel like it was extremely valuable for uh, any student or professional mm -hmm. worker. And I wish, I think this came out in what, 2016? Uh -huh. I wish this was available back in college that I could have read it then. Yeah. Or even right before starting public accounting. Uh -huh. And studying for the CPA exam because I think there, while a lot of the, while the topic here is pretty simple, there's a lot of valuable, valuable techniques, or tips to implement that would have helped me a lot. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I obviously think it's worth it. I when I um, when when I suggested this book, I told you that in order to understand a lot of how I try and structure my work you have to understand cal newport um and this book specifically because that's kind of how i try and structure my day of having yeah big blocks of of available time to do deep work and uh undistracted focus time um to get things done um and i'm a uh i would say i'm a cal newport cal newport fanboy <laughs> um yeah yeah, so I, I'll well, put myself in that club. I'll say this book gave me a good foundation on Cal Newport. In fact, uh, it's inspired me to go check out his other work, which is yes, pod, podcasts and uh, a website. And so, yep. um, I, so far, it's only been a week since I last finished the book, but I've enjoyed it the past week uh, checking out his other work. So yeah, so this was kind of like my first foray into his stuff, and I ended up reading. I didn't. I didn't read his. Uh, He's, he wrote a couple books geared towards specifically students. So I haven't read those, but otherwise I've read So Good They Can't Ignore You, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and The World Without Email. And then I will read 
slow productivity, which I know comes out in March. Yes. So, um, I will be reading that as well. Um, so, so to kind of give everybody an idea of what, uh, what is entailed in deep work. So what, what do we mean when we say deep work? So I'm going to read what verbatim they say in the book is the deep work hypothesis. Um, so deep work hypothesis he had is the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare at exactly the same time it is becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a consequence, the few who have the cultivate few who cultivate this skill and then make it the core of their working life will thrive. And so when he when we say deep work throughout this conversation, we'll say deep work a lot and we'll say shallow work. Deep work is professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push you to your cognitive capabilities to, to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. Whereas shallow work is non-cognitively demanding logistical style tasks, uh, often performed while distracted. These efforts tend to not create much new value in the world and are easy to replicate. So somewhat... The way I kind of think about it is like the thinking tasks where you need to be have your brain completely turned on and stretched to your capacity uh, versus more administrative, you know, email, uh, logistical type, when should we meet type conversations. Um, another question he kind of says like later in the book of how to determine what's deep and what's shallow is could a intelligent recent college graduate, how long would it take them to learn the task? uh on a like how many months scale and if it's like one or two it's probably shallow work or less than one or two um if it's m the more it is the more deep of work it is so if it, you're using a ton of your own expertise um then uh then it's going to be deeper than if if anybody without your f knowledge of your field can come in and do it within a couple months uh it's probably pretty shallow yeah so from there, so he poses the deep work hypothesis. And then the book's kind of broken into two different sections. The first section is like, why is deep work valuable, rare, and meaningful, including uh, a chapter on each. So valuable meaning, uh, basically, it's the ability to learn quickly as well as produce not only quickly, but uh, not only, yeah, produce quickly and well. Um, rare in that the current knowledge work environment goes against deep work in a lot of ways, including our constant connectivity and a lot of distractions like open office space, uh, which is funny, um, and meaningful, uh, in that when you, whenever you work deeply, um, your focus is on deeper topics. And so that leads to your life becoming more rich in meaning and importance. And then the second part of the book is kind of the tactics of, ways to do deep work. He t tells us to embrace boredom, uh, quit social media, and then drain the shallows, meaning limit your shallow work as much as possible. So that's kind of the setup of the book. So O'Burn, what were some of your big takeaways from reading? Honestly, my first big takeaway was uh, deep work is probably more valuable today than it has ever been before in history. Mm -hmm. And he even includes a, a quote in the book that says deep work is not some nostalgic affectation of writers and in early 20th century philosophers, like meaning the average person thinks of deep work as, uh, you know, someone in the 1800s, or early 1900s, hiding away in a log cabin for a year and then 
even you, they emerge with some kind of groundbreaking uh, discovery or maybe a story like Huckleberry Finn or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And with more people moving into knowledge work, as technology grows and grows and grows, it's replacing a lot of manual labor jobs. It's replacing a lot of clerical work. Uh, A lot of people are coming into the knowledge field and deep work is what's going to set you apart from the rest of the field, Mm -hmm. field of workers. uh, That is because it helps you master things fast. It helps you master hard things fast and very complex things. And so, so deep work is way more valuable today than it ever has been before because uh, those of us that want to uh, get way ahead in of our careers or, you know, uh, help you get your business to an elite level, deep work is going to help you get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found it um, interesting. At one point he talks about, um, you know, just like the distractions and stuff and like your ability to, stay away from those distractions and just like actually produce good work. Um, and one of the things that you struggle that, uh, people struggle with is that like, there's not really a good metric. He calls it the metric black hole of like, it's hard to quantify how awesome and what, like what exactly comes out of deep work. It's a lot harder to quantify that than it is to quantify like your email response time or something like that. He even says in the book, uh, there's a lot of people in the current office culture. And I think I would agree with this actually, is that there's a lot of people who basically just stay busy all day with shallow work, although they're not really adding a ton of value to the business. Right. But Mm -hmm. they're seen as they are seen by everyone else as extremely valuable and they get ahead faster than other people because they have this uh there's a perception that they're extremely busy therefore they're extremely important and that is something that we see a lot in uh current office culture but it's not really getting the business ahead no the uh i'm looking for a quote here um the uh yeah, knowledge work is not an assembly line where busyness equates to the value extracted. Like, whenever everything was on an assembly line or manual labor, like how much you do, how long you're at it is typically a- equivalent to your output. Um, whereas in knowledge, if you work for four hours on something, um, but somebody brings in the same, you know, thing in one hour like just because they are better at it or, you know, that is going like the one hour is going to be more valuable. Um, So, but it's hard to, it's hard to in knowledge work, everything's so abstract in terms of that. Um, It's hard to equate, like go, okay, you know, Oh, because you set aside these four hours and you've got a habit of deep work. uh, Yeah. You, uh, it's hard to equate what that ends up being, which is why people don't really think so, about so, it. So the metrics black hole is a, is a huge problem. Would mm. you agree? Mm. Yeah. I I mean, in accounting specifically, and I'm sure other people too, I find it hard, like KPIs, I find hard to come up with. And maybe I just haven't done enough work, but I just feel like the uh, the current KPIs are like, 
how efficient are we and how much are we uh, realizing everything like, you know, but it's also weird because it's like, okay, if I'm more efficient at something, now I need to work on more, but I'm still getting paid the same as somebody else. <laughs> right. You know, like it's a weird, like I have a hard time like getting, yes, getting more productive is good. But if you get more productive and now you have more time, you just end up working on more mm -hmm. and like, is that valued enough or not? And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but like, I don't feel like, your i don't feel like that does really justice of like how that's not really a good measurement in terms of like if deep work is effective or not right. i guess it is in that you're more efficient at things but sure like your quantity of work is uh i don't know that that's necessarily the best and i think that's the whole issue is that there isn't really a good like oh okay like let's point to this and let's yeah. just track that other than like you said, like track how many deep work hours you get in. There's, you know, a, a lot of public accounting firms, they do track realization, which uh -huh. I think you could, could say that kind of shows how efficient you are or not, but that's also dependent on, uh, you know, the project budget or something mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, the main metric that a lot of current companies use, uh, or at least public accounting firms use is charge hours. And so billable hours. And so, yeah, that's, um, you know, it's, there's kind of a catch 22 there, you know, you, you look good if you have a lot of billable hours, but you could also be, you know, quadruple the budget and be completely inefficient there. Yeah. Or you could have a bunch of billable hours cause you're distracted the whole time you're doing stuff. True. And therefore like, <laughs> so like that's, that's why, you know, when we, pr when we price our services, we price on a, on a flat fee, um, because if we get better at working on you as a client, like, and we take our usage time down from say five hours to two hours, like typically if we were to charge by the hour, now we're getting paid less. And there's also no way for us to like have any sort of margin. It's just trading time for money. Um, and I think in most industry or in a lot of industries, people are trying to get away from trading time for yeah. money because it's not about, how much time it takes something it's more about like how much value have you extracted and i think that goes back to the whole deep work um mantra is basically like if you can do things if you can do rare and valuable things like that's a rare and valuable skill to have uh yeah. so if you can do things quicker like you should be rewarded for it rather than than not and i think that hourly billing model you know you're not rewarded for deep work you're actually rewarded for taking longer on things that's true from like a monetary point of view um but there's also the issue of uh you know surprise bills of like oh well this month it actually took me 10 hours and last month it took me two yes your bill is five times higher this month yes but, you know that's and if, there, if there's one thing i ever learned is that clients do not love surprises when it comes no. to the billing <laughs> no if you agree on a price they want the price Yep. which I agree with, like, I understand. Um, so, but yeah, I think that's the whole, like, how do we structure wor our work so that we are getting not only able to do deep work, but also being rewarded for engaging in deep work and yes. having this rare, rare and valuable skill, um, that others don't have. Yeah.
I think deep work not only helps us, the worker, it helps you, the client out there, um, in knowing that you're getting our, our best effort for mm -hmm. sure. And, and you know, that we're, we're never going to surprise you with, you know, extraordinary bills that are four times what you agreed to. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I know at one point he also mentions talking about like, um, most people don't work, actually work eight hours a day. Um, and I think to that point, like I've been in situations where a coworker, uh, was watching a TV show while, while, while working. Oh and yeah. It's like, I've, I've seen that. <laughs> who, who would you rather be working on your accounting? The person <laughs> watching a TV show while also doing your accounting or somebody who's like focused, who who's focused on deep work and like having a uh un undistracted uh time to do do the thing whatever that thing is yeah and you know we, we we've both seen there's there's a ton of people who work out in the field that uh you know they might have the radio going or like a podcast going but there are we yeah we've seen where you know people have multiple screens and one of their screens is showing you know a show on netflix and those people have you know, they definitely get a talking to, but, uh, you know, unfortunately we've had to let people go because of it. Yeah. Uh, if they're repeat offenders and, and yeah, that's what, that's what we're talking about when, you know, to get in a state of deep work, you need to eliminate those distractions. Mm -hmm. And I think Cal Newport even used the, the, the term attention residue. Oh yes. Because I, I love that word actually attention residue. Um, because basically every every time you get into something, there is still whatever you were doing before or whatever else is going on in the moment, some of that is still kind of rattling in your brain. And so, you know, to get in a state of deep work, you really have to eliminate all of that out of your head before you can really get into something deeply and have give yourself the opportunity to provide value. Yeah, so if you're constantly checking emails and pinging from one chat to the next or from going, you know, oh, I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that, no, I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that, like you're, all of that adds up and then it, I think I said, I saw something that, I want to say the quote was something like, um, on average, the average office worker checks email every six minutes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it also takes, I think, in a, in conjunction with that, it takes something like, I don't know, 15 to 30 minutes to like actually get into whatever you're working or something like the, yeah. th that's the whole attention residue thing. Like, so it takes long, it takes like 10, say 10 minutes to like actually forget what you were working on before and actually get into what you're working on now. Yeah. Um, and if you're checking every email, every six minutes, uh, do the math. Yeah, <laughs> no. Great. And in fact, Day one as an intern, when you when you start working, a ton of people will be like, always have Outlook open or always have your uh, your instant message open because, you know, you need to be available when we need you. And uh, while that's good to, to, you know, to receive new projects and all that stuff, um, it's bad once you actually start working on those projects because mm -hmm. then everybody's trying to get your attention for something. Mm -hmm. And I know we are... I say we as a society, we're a slave to the the notifications, you know, something, yeah. something comes through and we're like, oh man, I got to answer it right now. Uh, you know, get this off my plate. But, you know, Cal, Cal Newport 
in his book argues that's actually worse for you uh, yeah. and that you should probably set time blocks to basically handle all of that at once at a certain time of the day. Mm-hmm. And so now something I'm curious so your thoughts on is from a, so take an intern versus like a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there is a time where being available at all times is better uh, versus, um, you know, not? Yeah. Like, um, mm-hmm. So I think he even uses the uh, the example of the CEO. The CEO kind of lives in the shallow work where he can be interrupted at all times or, you know, I guess the uh, the open door policy is what a lot of people use. Um, it, I think in that in those circumstances is good for people that are higher up on the management scale to be available like that because a lot of times your lower level staff or your interns they have a lot of questions and then well they have a lot of questions but and then they get stuck a lot so i think being available uh frequently throughout the day maybe not all the time because otherwise you'll probably never get anything done because there's interns who will start working on something and you know every five seconds they'll be like hey i'm stuck hey i'm stuck how do you do this and so usually how we handle that is hey just be like, hey, uh, how about you work on this for 30 minutes, build up a list of questions, and then at the end of this 30-minute time block, we'll go over it. And so I think – so I would say be available kind of throughout the day in certain like time blocks versus mm-hmm. maybe 24-7 because mm-hmm. then they will take advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. And at, you as a manager or as a CEO or whoever will uh, – you won't be able to get anything done if you're constantly answering questions. But I would Mm -hmm. say you should be more available um, as a higher up than as a lower level employee for sure. Yeah. I think, I, I I guess it also depends on your role. If you're, if you're expected to be managing other people and that's most of your role um, and analyzing reports and that like, okay, how are we doing? Um, I can see where that like availability to answer questions is good, but I'd also think that like, we're, if you, if you're expected to do high level intellectual tasks, so like even like a CEO, like if they're expected to go in and do a huge negotiation, they should probably still put, put time aside, but also have time available. And I think yeah. he uses office hours. I don't know if it's in this book or another book, but he recommends like office hours where people can come and have that open door policy, but have it restricted to a certain amount of time and mm-hmm. consistent times. Uh, so you can still do those deep work um, sessions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, from a from a public accounting, which did you prefer to have in terms of an intern? An intern that asks questions every five minutes or the intern that doesn't ask any questions, finishes the worksheet and did it all wrong? <laughs> um, with those two extremes, I think I'd rather have the one that constantly asks questions. Yes. <laughs> but there is a happy medium. Now, yeah, I've, I've definitely had the interns where you know, something is about a four hour task. They complete it in 30 minutes and you're just like, wow, this guy's a rock star. Uh, and then it turns out the entire thing was wrong. And then you have to go back and redo it all. <laughs> yeah. But, um, is I, between the two extremes, I'd rather have the intern that's constantly asking questions and wants to get it right. Yes. However, there definitely is a happy medium. Now I would be happy to, um, uh, basically talk, talk, 
the intern that asked a ton of questions, I'd be happy just to talk to him and be like, hey, yeah, here, here, we're going to work with some time blocks here. Uh, build up your questions and then we'll go over all of them, you know, at the top of the hour. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the other things I think we should mention is like in terms of like how to do deep work and like what that even looks like. I think from a, from a knowledge work perspective, unless you're like a writer or somebody like that, like I think that he, he mentioned several different types, like bimodal, um, which basically means you go to that cabin in the woods for an extended period of time. There's also like the journalist, which like you can switch into deep work at any time, but you're kind of well yeah. practiced at it. But I think the most, uh, applicable for our conversation and for, you know, office jobs mostly is the rhythmic where basically it's just a, a habit of, you know, a certain block of time every day yeah. to have set aside to just do deep work, whether that means like just focus time to complete a list of tasks or mm -hmm. sending, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to get this one thing done today. It just depends on what's going on, but like having that on a daily basis. Um, yeah. So for me, what that ends up looking like is I try and block off my mornings. Um, uh, there's some exceptions where I break the rule. Um, but for the most part, I try not to schedule any meetings before 11 um, and use that time intentionally to get the most important thing of the day done. Um, and I think that has that has worked for me. So like I've I read this book, I think, four years ago, and this was a reread for me. So that is something I have done. Is that something you think you'll uh, how do you think you'll implement uh deep work from that perspective like what do you think that'll look like for you yeah i think imp yeah implementing small time blocks for me is especially because I, I i do accounting i also do a, a few other other jobs on the side so for me implementing small time blocks is going to be crucial for me going forward right mm -hmm. and so uh, some people use the uh uh oh, what is it the pomodoro technique where it's about like a 45 minute uh, time block. For me, that's a little short. I think at least maybe an hour, mm -hmm. uh, to hour and a half, two hours uh, would be good to really settle into something. Mm -hmm. um, the journalistic approach here, I don't, I don't think that's going to be something that I think he even said that most people will struggle with that approach. Yeah. Uh, to, to re to dedicate any unexpected free time or any like free time throughout the day it could be five minutes could be an hour uh just to get yourself into deep work i think that's going to be a struggle for a lot mm -hmm. of people it would definitely be a struggle for me mm -hmm. uh so i think kind of medium hour to three hour time blocks is what's going to be crucial for me and having some sort of calendar piece of paper where i set aside time and then during that time period, develop the self-discipline to eliminate all distractions, you know, eliminate your phone or, you know, turn your phone off, do whatever that helps you get into that deep state. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be extremely helpful for me going forward for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, one of his big things is the time blocking. Um, he actually has a time block planner as well, which I've had until I got a remarkable and then I just basically made my own custom version. Um, but the, uh, time blocking is essentially giving every minute of the day a job 
And what I equate it to is like, you know, the Dave Ramsey system of like your envelopes of like you have you you get if you want to spend this much money on this category, you yeah. pay this money. Yeah. The budget envelopes. Like, yeah. The zero based <laughs> budgeting of like this is how much money I get for this month for this category. Um, yeah. That's from the budgeting side from like a, a nutrition side. Like you could do it. Think about it from like a meal planning of like here's how many calories I'm going to eat today. And this is what it's going to look like. Like, this is what my breakfast is going to look like. My lunch is going to look like my dinner is going to look like it's kind of taking those same concepts and applying it to your work. And so yeah. that way, and I, I, I liked in there, he talks about how it's not about hitting your time block plan a hundred percent. It's more about just the intentionality of uh, like understanding right. what is the priority? What is it going to look like? What does my day look like? So that you're not surprised by, oh man, I have a two o'clock meeting. Like, wh where'd that come from? Like, yeah, kind of looking at it and hitting it from an intentional point of view. Um, and I can't remember if it's in this book or other books, but he also talks about like having a uh, like a multi-scaled. So like having a daily time block, having like kind of a a weekly idea of what your week's going to look like, and then ha also having kind of a he says semesters because he's a professor, but like having an idea of you know, I'm going to try and accomplish this over the next quarter or over the next six yeah. months or whatever. Um, and using the, 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 the quarterly to, um, educate your weekly and have your weekly educate your, your daily, um, so that you can, yeah. you know, execute on these big goals over a period of time. Um, yeah, I think those larger based those larger time blocks that goes more into the uh, the bimodal philosophy and the monastic philosophy, probably. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Uh, as much as I would love to, uh, you know, shut myself off in a cabin cabin in the woods for a few weeks, and you know, really especially crank. since having kids, right? <laughs> yeah, when you have kids and a wife, that's not going to work. Yeah, uh, I you know I I thought it was funny. He had the example of a few writers who actually built a cabin in their backyard, which I yeah. thought was hilarious. Be like, you know, hey, honey, I'm going to go out to my cabin in the backyard here for a, <laughs> yeah. for a, for a week. Um, well, that goes uh, down to like one of the things he brings up is the idea of the grand gesture of like basically things things you need to think through whenever you're thinking about your deep work is how you're going to do it, how long you're going to do it, where you're going to do it, and like how you're going to support that work. And I think that yeah. goes under the how you're going to support that work. So I, one of the reasons I got an office was because I was no longer able to effectively get work done in a deep manner or really in any sort of effective manner at home. Um, because with a one and three year old running around, it just became such a distraction that I just like, and it wasn't even their fault. It's me. Like they sound like they're having fun. I want to go have fun too. Like, <laughs> like stuff like that, like, or just yeah. seeing the laundry, like, Oh, I need to do that tonight. You know, like, I I decided getting office space was the best mode for me because I felt like that was going to give me my best chance to do deep work and do intentional, you know, if I'm here, I'm working type situation, sure. uh, which allows my mind to go, okay, in this location, this is where we work and allows me to kind of silo it into this office rather than it be bleeding over into the house. So yeah. I think that, you know, that cabin in the backyard sounds nice. Um, maybe yeah. one day when I'm just a huge baller, I'll have my own, <laughs> uh, situation in the backyard, but for now, rented office space is what's going to do you it know, for me. I, th I think the grand gesture really works, especially when, when you're invested, especially monetarily, 
you're going to take it a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. And what, who's the example that he, uh, there was a, it was a JK Rowling. Um, she uh, rented out a hotel room for what, a month or a yeah. week. Uh-huh. And she finished her Harry Potter series doing that because she couldn't work at home anymore. Yeah. So one of the big, one of the big examples he uses on the podcast now is have you ever heard of Brandon Sanderson, the fantasy writer? Uh, actually I have. Yes. Okay. So are you familiar with his house? No. So in his house, he bought the lot next door to his house. Um, and, uh, essentially what he did was build a villain's lair (laughs) underground, (laughs) um, where he does all his writing and like, he has like a theater room and stuff down there, but like, it's essentially like this ornate, uh, you know, essentially a villain what you would picture to be like a villain's lair you know like underground and everything um where he does all his writing and stuff like that's a huge like that's awesome i'm gonna have to look that one up here here yeah definitely look that up (laughs) but like i mean thinking about from like even like this podcast is a good idea a good example of um we could have read this book and talked about it but like having the intentionality of like this is going to be done in a podcast like conversation like True. You, you, I read the book differently and took notes differently because yeah. I knew I was going to have to do it, you know, talk about it yeah. and teach on it essentially through this, this lens. Whereas if we had just read it, we could have just been like, oh, it was good. Cool. <laughs> no, right, yeah. I would say the podcast <laughs> is definitely a grand gesture because if I would have read this without, having to record a podcast, I wouldn't have taken notes on it at all. I would have read it through and be like, Oh, this is cool. Yeah. I would, you know, maybe I'll take uh, one or two ideas maybe. Um, but you know, when I'm taking notes on it, highlighting, um, and you know, I think both of us after, after we got through this book, both of us had, you know, three, four or five pages of notes on this book. Um, it helps us digest it a lot more. And, really kind of look at the ideas and and say hey this is actually something we can do going forward yeah yeah so are there any any uh grand gestures or like is that something that is interesting to you is there something that you're going to implement around that idea of like having a spot a an action or something to trigger deep work you know you? I'm, I'm trying to think i i do have an office at home um of other grand gestures i think i don't know if the idea of rituals goes into this mm-hmm. uh he talks about rituals that help help you get into to deep work um rituals in the sense of like hey you do the same thing over and over mm-hmm. uh you, maybe you grab a cup of coffee or whatever yeah. um maybe that's something um i should look into doing uh just kind of go through the exact same steps every time that i'm mm-hmm. planning to do deep work I even saw someone had, you know, there was someone who even said that they put the same same shirt on before getting into deep work. That you know, if they <laughs> were the shirt, if they, if they have a deep work shirt, and I thought thought that I thought that was hilarious at first, and now, then I'm like, actually, that's probably not a bad idea because it kind of gets you in the mindset. But uh, you know, maybe that's a grand gesture. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't plan on renting out hotel rooms anytime soon <laughs> to, to no. do some work, but. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe develop a uh, a strong ritual before getting into uh you know something really deep where you know I might have a you know, three or four hour time block. Uh, it might be good to you know every time I do this, maybe I uh, 
you know, turn on the fan, grab a, grab a coffee, you know, do something that helps me really get into the work. Mm -hmm. So one of the big themes he brings up, and I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it, um, is quitting social media. So what's your current social media usage look like? Oh man. I use social media, mainly uh, Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it these days. Um, I use it a lot. In fact, after going through this book, I looked at uh, the screen time, screen time, uh, a setting on your, on your phone. I was like, oh my gosh, there's no way. There's no way I actually use it that much. Uh, but phone I'm, is I'm, lying sure, to you. I'm, I'm sure the, yeah, yeah. Screen time doesn't lie. So, <laughs> so, um, I use it a lot, but I, I, I will say it can be useful for some professions, mm -hmm. mainly those who need to uh, develop a community with uh, their audience. That is not us in the accounting field. We, we, we are not relying on, on X or Twitter to, you know, to develop a community with our audience. So I would say that quitting social media, at least during working hours for sure mm -hmm. would be absolutely huge. And then you're not a slave to the notifications of, oh, you know, who did Shohei Otani just sign with? Or, you Dodgers. know, what's going on with, uh, you know, so-and-so, you know, th that's what I use. That's what I use uh, social uh, social media mostly for is just mm -hmm. you know, seeing what the latest news is, especially for stuff that's not important, like baseball or or whatever else. Baseball is important. And <laughs> But but it can wait till the end of the day. I'll say that. So me me knowing right now who uh, a certain baseball player, what team they signed with, uh, it's going to make no difference whether I know it now or at six o'clock tonight. So well, and this is actually kind of a great example because I'm involved in a fantasy baseball league, and in my group chat, the, you know, they were like, "Sounds like he's going to Toronto," and like all this stuff, um, you know, like all these rumors and. Yeah, sounds like Toronto's a done deal. Um, so if you're surfing Twitter and and the web interwebs, you're like, well, Otani's signing with Toronto. Well, I I wasn't on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and you know, the next day it's like, well, he signed with the Dodgers. And it's like, if I hadn't have gotten that message from that group chat or whatever, oh, like yeah. it would have never like I wouldn't have even known. That Toronto was a possibility, and if I was a Toronto fan, like yeah, I would have been. I went. And, and, I would have. I would have had this roller coaster of emotions. And, and here's what happens in that scenario. So, so you're doing some work. I get, you know, I get my text message from my group, like, "Hey, Shohei Otani signed with Toronto." Then I'm like, "All right, I'm getting immediately to Twitter. Like, let's see, refresh, let's refresh, see. refresh, yeah, refresh. Yeah, let's let's see all these latest rumors. What's going on? Is he really signing? What's the contract look like? And then next thing you know, you wasted an hour on social media over a bunch of rumors at least an hour at least for something that didn't even end up being true yeah turns out yeah you wasted you know part of your working day over something stupid uh -huh. and yeah it wasn't it didn't even end up being true and then you look back and be like all right what was what value did i get out of that anyways other than just to maybe socialize a little bit on the group text mm -hmm. you know um so, so I'll yes. say my social media usage is now down to I guess if you count group chats I do I do have several of those for like the fantasy baseball league, um, so I do have some of those. I do have a Facebook, 
um, because there are some groups I am involved in that only have Facebook groups. But what I've done is set up a shortcut so that I can go straight to those group pages and see if there's any updates or events or something that I'm interested in. Yeah. And, and um, you know, also with social media, when you get those notifications, even if for, even if you, you know, you're on social media or look at the, the group chat for two minutes, uh-huh. what that leaves is, uh, the attention residue. Oh yeah. You go back to that. Cause then, you know, you, you might look at it for a minute and then go back to your work, but then in the back of your mind, it's always, wait, is he really going to sign with Toronto? Like, yeah, exactly. what is it? <laughs> yeah. So just to eliminate all that attention residue is good to just eliminate the phone or eliminate social media. Yeah. Especially during working hours. hours, but yeah. And the reason, and now like now my social media usage is like, I don't know, let's call it 30 minutes a week. If we were talking, yeah. just signing on to Facebook or Twitter or something like that. And, um, and that, is way down from where it was four years ago before I read this book. This book and a couple others are definitely uh, the catalyst to me being like, I don't, I don't find value in this anymore. Um, And one of the concepts he brought up that I felt was important was the idea of the any benefit approach to tool selection versus the craftsman approach to tool selection. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that part? I, vaguely remember that yes so basically the any benefit approach is you justify and using the network tool if you can identify any for possible any benefit. reason yes um but what that misses out is like the downside like how much time and attention it takes which is probably is probably a mostly downside honestly <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> Uh, versus the craftsman approach, which is essentially identifying the core factors that determine success and happiness in your professional and personal life, and then only adopt a tool if it has if the positive impacts outweigh the negative impacts. So, like I know one of the examples he uses is like the connection you can like for Facebook, the connection you can have with mul- a bunch of different people that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. But his argument is like, are we doing that as a um, essentially? Are we are we sacrificing our connections right in front of us due due to like the ability to be connected with these people that like we went to high school with and may never see again? And it's like, very shallow connections. Yeah. 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 A bunch of like text based, you know, one sentence at a at a time versus like having deep, meaningful conversations with your spouse, family, close friends. Like who's sitting right next to you in the living room. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Also doing the same exact thing that you're doing. Probably. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) All all while watching Netflix with a laptop open and. Yeah. And so one of the quotes I pulled from the book is our strategy, therefore, would return a perhaps surprising but clear conclusion. Of course, Facebook offers benefits to your social life, but none are important enough to really matter to you in the areas to justify giving it access to your time and attention. Um, another quote I pulled and I like, like afterwards, I'm just like, yes, this is exactly what I was looking for (laughs) is, um, 
These services aren't necessarily as advertised the lifeblood of our modern connected world. They're just products developed by private companies, funded lavishly, marketed carefully, and designed ultimately to capture, then sell your personal information and attention to advertisers. They can be fun, but in the scheme of your life and what you want to accomplish, they're a lightweight whimsy. One unimportant distraction among threat among many threatening to derail you from d something deeper, or maybe social media tools are at the core of your existence. You won't know either way until you sample a life without them. And that was to his point of like, even if you're the biggest social media user in the world, you should try, try going off of them for 30 days and yeah. then asking yourself, you know, asking yourself, would the last 30 days have been noticeably be better if I had been able to use the services and did people care that I wasn't using the service? And I will tell you from experience, people don't care. People don't, don't care. Use the service. Um, what, what, what do you call that? The, uh, packing party? Is that kind of the idea? Um, do you remember that part? Uh, vaguely. He, um, yeah. So it, this actually, I think it started with, um, maybe, Oh, that was about the minimalism stuff. So it was like getting rid of, I think it started with getting rid of kind of clutter in your house if you're very disorganized. Mm -hmm. And so, but the same kind of, the same approach works for social media. So if you, if you're very cluttered, disorganized, pack everything away as if you're moving. And then over the next month or three months, if you actually use something, you know, unpack it and put it in this place, put it in its place in your house. Mm -hmm. But after three months, if you never even thought about it one time, get rid of it. Yeah. And same thing for social media. If, if, if you, you know, just decide to pack it away and then if you feel like it's absolutely necessary to use it, um, then I guess you can, you know, pull it, pull it, pull it back out. But otherwise, yeah, as you said, after after a week or maybe even an entire month, if you don't miss it, if no one's missing you on it, just drop it. Yeah, and I think he expands on it in his book, Digital Minimalism. Uh, but I know, like, one of the things is like if you and maybe maybe it's it's typically not a like a do I miss it? Yes. Do I miss it? No. You know, even if you say yes, he says if you said no, I didn't miss it. No, nobody missed me from it like just quit like what are you doing um but if you say yes like come back with an intentionality of like okay like how do i set this up to only see the things that i want to see so yeah. like for example i know one of the examples and this may have been from a different book but um like if you're an artist and you want to see other artists doing their thing on instagram he's like okay then only find a way to filter for only those artists only that artist yeah and uh and then like set a timer for like five minutes and go look at them and then be done versus yeah. just like scrolling and scrolling I, I will and say scrolling. That happens to me so often when I'll go online specifically to look at one thing and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, look at this funny video. This is hilarious. And then you just find yourself still scrolling like oh, yeah, uh -huh. all these funny videos that at the end of the day, I would have been completely fine not seeing at yeah. all. So but you really need to see that cat and that dog being best friends and hugging each other, right? Yeah, that's right. It's super important, especially for what we're doing every day. Yeah. Um. So, so we kind of talked about the quit social media. One of the other sections was embracing boredom. Oh yes. How do you, yes. Was he's, that? So he's talking about how modern people are a slave to distraction. So, so I think he uses the. Um, he like he used the imagery of you standing in line at a grocery store and you know you know we've all been there it's like you know 
you got to wait five uh, five minutes in line at the checkout. What do we all do? Pull out our phone, start scrolling, doing whatever we do. And so everybody's a slave to that distraction. Like you can't even be bored for five minutes. And actually I have a funny story that I, I still think about fairly often because it's just so ridiculous. And I, oh, I remember no. I, I go to the eye doctor every year, right? And so I remember I went to the eye doctor about a year ago and I checked in and usually you don't wait a long time at the eye doctor. And I sat down in the waiting room and I pulled, put my hand in my pocket to pull, pull out my phone and I left my phone in the car. And I remember I had a minor panic attack. Like, oh my gosh, like I need this. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be bored. Like, what if I need it for some reason? Well, bored up? Oh no. And, <laughs> and I, and I looking back on it, I'm like, this is absolutely so ridiculous. Even in the moment, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah. I don't need my phone for the next 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Uh, and I still think about that every now and then just to kind of laugh about it because it's just so ridiculous how yeah. how much of a slave we are to uh, always, always being stimulated mentally, always. Mm-hmm. And so helping yourself, it, basically just retraining your brain to embrace that boredom helps you get into a state of deep work uh, more often and maybe faster. Yeah. Well, I liked his his concept of instead of scheduling the occasional break from distraction so you can focus, you should instead schedule the occasional break from focus to give in to distraction. So yeah. like, even if you want to be distracted, that's fine, but be intentional about it. So like, say, you know, you know, at this time block in the middle of the day for 15 minutes, I'm just going to surf the web yeah. and I'm going to check my fantasy sports teams. I'm going to, you know, watch a funny video on YouTube that my friend texted me about, like, you know, you can, you can still do those things. The goal isn't to eliminate this, but to limit the brain space utilized by the distraction and to do it on your terms rather than just whatever, you know, the attention economy is going after you for. Right. And I I think, you know, a lot of people I've, I've heard, you know, they use that Pomodoro technique where it's like 45 minutes of work and then you get five, you get five minutes to work at, you know, um, you know, to look at social media or do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, the whole idea is to look at like, yeah, be, look at your distractions in certain time blocks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Where I'm really bad about this is the bathroom. Like, have you ever had that moment? And I'm sure you have, I know I have is like, you go to the bathroom, you know, you're doing your business and you're like, well, let me go check. I'm not working right now, so let me go check whatever. And then whatever you check ends up being like a 30-minute, like, oh, I should probably 30, get back to work. 30-minute you know, like, break. Yeah. yeah. You're like, I, I, t- I just I t- need t- to go to the bathroom for like two seconds. And this happens a lot like in 15, 30 I, minutes. This happens a lot in current office culture, especially with open open floor plans. Where, yeah, you get up to go to the bathroom. Next thing you know, you see like six different people on the way. You're hanging out in the break room. All of a sudden, yeah, 30 minutes goes by and you're like, oh, shoot, I was really trying to work on something right now. <laughs> and yeah. so. Which sometimes I miss that, to be honest. like Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I don't think his point is like, don't talk to people. Only, <laughs> only deep work. Only work all the time. Yeah. In fact, at one point he says like, when we work, work hard. When, you, when you're not working. I, I don't work I think at all. Like we probably took too, too like too much advantage of it though. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. 
Well, well, I think the nature of our job too was a lot of out of town. You didn't see a lot of people. That's so like true. when we were in the yeah. office, it was like somewhat of a social time of like, hey, we're in the office, which means we're probably not working on, or we are still working on stuff, but not sort as hard of. as we were. Very when shallow we were out work. In the, in the field. Which is why I always thought in public accounting on Saturdays. So usually everyone's kind of dispersed, especially if you're in the audit field. And then on Saturdays, everybody comes into the office. And when everyone's there, everyone's like, oh, I haven't seen you in three weeks. And then, it's mostly social hour from 8 so to 12. So that's what your legs look like. And so it's, it's mostly social hour from 8 a.m. to 12, uh, you know, to 12 at noon. And if if any work gets done, it's extremely shallow. Yeah. And Which is why I never, I think I only worked in the office on a Saturday a few, a handful of times. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I never got anything done. Well, so, so some people show up on Saturdays just to show face. Say so be like, hey, I was here. And then... Which is ridiculous. <laughs> well, that is so ridiculous. If and, you don't and... have something to do, why are you, like unless you were intentionally like, I want to go socialize, like, okay. But if you're just and the main reason face, people showed up is because the firm mandated it, you know? Well, and some or 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 the individual partner or project manager mandated it. Right. But like that's the thing. Like, yeah, I, I know that this mandate existed. Luckily I didn't have one. Um, but like what like that kind of comes back to our conversation of like trading time for money of like yeah. okay yeah i can be there on a saturday but if i'm not doing anything what's the point of me being there like right or could i have something to do yeah maybe um but like the it's not i'm probably not finishing the audit on a saturday oh for sure and you know there there were times where i came in on saturdays uh, under a deadline, a lot of stuff to do, and I guarantee you, I, I was probably there at eight or nine in the morning on a Saturday, and I got absolutely nothing done until noon because we're just, everyone's just hanging out. And you know when I got the most work done is that usually after noon, ninety five percent of the people all leave to go home, uh-huh. and that's actually when I got the most work done. When if maybe I stayed at home and started working at eight a.m. I could actually maybe have not stayed at the office till six or seven at night on a Saturday. And so, yeah, yeah when you eliminate, eliminate those distractions, you definitely get a lot more done. Yeah. Well, and um, one of the things he talks about too is um, the idea of like a shutdown routine and like when you're working, work. When you're not working, don't work. Like, and having that separated. And I know, I don't remember if it's in this book or just from listening to his podcast and stuff is just like the idea of fixed schedule productivity of like giving yourself, okay, I work from eight to five every day, say for example. And like, if you're only allowed to work during those times, you're, if you have a lot to do, you're going to be more focused about it. Um, and if you don't, and like, they've even done studies of like when people move from a five day work week to a four day work week, um, not a four days of 10 hours, just like a four, days of eight hour like 32 hour work week versus a 40 hour work week they still get the same amount done they're just more they're more uh stingy with their time sure yeah and are still able to get everything done because they eliminate a lot of that shallow work and a lot of that um bluff time yeah and you know i think the shutdown routine or shutdown ritual 
I think is something actually I might implement going forward. So yeah. basically I think it's, it's kind of, you know, take inventory of everything that happened throughout the day that maybe when you show up the next day, you need to uh, address mm-hmm. um, going forward. And that kind of prevents like, you know, psychologically that prevents, you know, things from rattling around in your brain once you get off of work, because mm-hmm. when you're off of work, you want to be off of work. Right. And yeah. just be just totally. Yeah cut off of it so you can be, you know, spend time with your kids or your family or, or whatever, you know, leisure activities you like to do. And so I, th- I think that's definitely something that I'm going to probably implement going forward is at the end of the day, work day, take inventory. I think you said, you know, spend some time to make a list of all the things that happened today that need to be addressed going forward and how you're going to do it and what time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not piercing the veil of like, okay, you did your shutdown routine and then something comes up at like six fifteen or whatever, like to not engage with it and just say, yeah. you know, that doesn't matter, which yeah. is why I don't have email on my phone. Um, I don't have chat on my phone. I guess I can text you. And sometimes yeah. I do if I have like you, a you know, idea or whatever. And I'm like, I, I, I know some people that have the work email and the work instant messenger on their phone constantly like beeping at them all day or even like outside of work or on weekends. I'm like, no way drives me nuts. And I also don't know how they get anything done. (laughs) And the answer, maybe they don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I did get a kick out of, uh, when, when he was talking about the, uh, the shutdown routine, he said at the end of his shutdown routine, he would just be like, shut down complete. So I just, I, I just pictured a, uh, you know, a little robot shutdown complete or something like that. Are you going to start doing that? He said it's a good thing for your mind to like really switch. <laughs> he he into... did say that. He did say that. So just like the uh, the work shirt, you know, the deep yeah. work shirt, uh, I might just do all these ridiculous things, you know, since I work at home anyways, no one's going to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those things that you, try, you somewhat throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall and see what ends up sticking and like what ends up working for you. Because I think yeah. that's what like all these books are, you know, these personal development books, they have a ton of good ideas. If you implemented every idea from every book, like you wouldn't be able to do anything because you'd have like a 10 hour morning routine. Yeah. So like you kind of have to figure out what works for you in like in, in what your profession is. Cause at the end of the day, these books are for general use, you know, like right. what works for your specific life and what works for your specific situation. And yeah. then the stuff that doesn't like, it's okay. Um, so I feel like we kind of hit, I guess the only thing we didn't really hit is like trying to limit your shallow work using a bunch of tactics through email and, um, you know, like trying to keep the ratio of deep to shallow, like shallow work should be no more than 50% and try and actually keep it down to 30% if you can. Um, and sometimes that involves letting small bad things happen, like not answering an email quick enough. Right. Um, and one of the quotes I pulled that I really liked was from Tim Ferriss. And he said, develop the habit of letting small bad things happen. If you don't, you'll f- never find the time for the life changing big things, um, which I really like. Um, did you have anything else in that section that you wanted yeah, to go so over? The email, I think, was the big one. And mm-hmm. I yeah. think he, so he, big he, he says, ended up writing another book about it. Yeah. Which I haven't read. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm going to check it out though. But yeah, basically, sure. he says he says in this is this book though is don't respond because email comes in. You know, we're just like, all right, I just gotta you know address this real quick, get off my place, so I can go back to what I was doing. Basically, don't respond to an email just to temporarily get it off your plate. Like 
I just kind of glance at the email, throw a quick response, uh, you know, knowing that it's probably going to come back at me that you know, next morning or whatever. He basically says, kind of, you know, set it, first of all, set a time block where you do this shallow work, where you look at the emails, but then actually consider what the email says, get a clear idea of what the project or, you know, whatever it is the sender is asking. Yeah. And then respond basically with an idea of, what steps are needed to finish it and in what time frame he and he goes that is going to save a ton of time for you mm -hmm. later down the line not only for you but for whoever you know is on the other side of this email mm -hmm. and i completely agree yeah uh because looking back on it oh i did this all the time i would just i would see an email come in you know just shoot back a quick you know one sentence like oh yeah um you then know, you just basically end up just, chatting through email. Just yeah, basically it's just a chat through email, kicking the can down the line for another you know few hours or maybe till the next day, and this would help a lot of people, especially in in, in uh, internal email uh -huh. office. Yeah, I think um, the other thing is like one of the things he examples is like logistics of like here's some times that work for me, um, and I think now if if that was updated it would it would include like hey like consider getting a program like calendly or something where your calendar is connected and you can just send a link to the people's like to the person to pick a time that works for them that you've denoted yeah so that's a program that i use is like okay that somebody needs to meet with me okay um here's a link of like an hour block pick a time that works for you on my calendar. And then like yeah. I set my calendar to be times that I have available. Um, yeah. And it reads my calendar and tells that basically is it takes a lot of that back and forth out of the way. But yeah, I think spending, yeah, his, he's like, it's counter counterintuitive, but spending more time on crafting an email versus like just sending whatever's the easiest will end up taking less time overall because it takes away a lot of that back and forth. Yeah. Um, and I agree because when I when I have done that in the past, like it has cut down and you kind of like trying to anticipate like what are they what what are they going to come back with? And like, how do I <laughs> answer that on the first try rather right. than and then sometimes also like don't be afraid to pick up the phone because sometimes like you could have all the back and forth emails or nowadays you could also do um, like a loom uh, where you essentially you record a video answer to oh. an email okay sometimes clients will, yeah sometimes clients will email and be like what is this i'm like well that's going to take a while like i can either type out <laughs> like a you know a small no novella or i can record uh, a three minute video where i'm pointing to things and able to show you my screen and really yeah. really break it down um and i think that's also an alternative today that if it was to be answered or if it was, um, if this book was written now, uh, what could potentially be uh, in that section as well? Sure. Um, one more thing in this section, I think, is just learning to say no. Yes. To, to things, I, I think he he says most people's default when when a request comes in for whatever, it could even be something like, uh, "Hey, uh, do you want to head up the uh, you know Secret Santa?" Um, you know, project this year for, for the office. Uh, I, th I think the, yeah, he says most people's default answer is to say yes to everything. So you can appear 
Uh, so you can appear valuable, even though you're probably not doing anything actually that valuable. So he says, you know, learn to, you know, make your default answer no. And so, mm -hmm. so that way, when you say yes, you can actually provide true value and make time blocks for it. Uh, so you can, you know, give the best quality for whatever project it is. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I think, uh, something to consider I've, I've added some like personal rules to my life of like, I am not going to serve on more than two nonprofit boards at the same time. Like that makes it really easy for me to say no to things. Cause I, if I can get asked, Hey, do you want to be on this board? No, I'm already on two. I can, yeah. I can not only say no, but I can be like, no, that I, I'm only, I only allow myself two at the same time and I'm already on two. I'll consider it in the future. Like, sure. Like adding things like that makes it easier to say no because no is harder. I know at one point in the book he talks about like a lot of times we do the thing that has the path of least resistance and that's usually email like where email gets done yeah. is it's just easy. There's no no friction there. Um, but to actually live a deep life and to ha be able to do deep work and to you know, live on our, our terms. A lot of times we have to add friction to things that other people aren't willing to add friction to, yeah. um, to protect our time. Uh, cause you know, we are the ones who have our best interest at heart. Um, and not everybody has that. So, um, so yeah, being protective of your time and knowing that this is, I think from a different book, but saying yes to something is saying no to a thousand things. So when you say when you say yes to something and commit to something, that means you can't say yes to some other thing that you may have potentially wanted to. Um, sure. So every time you say yes, especially on things that you're not like super jazzed about, like you're saying no to opportunities that you may be jazzed about. Now that being said, there are some people who waffle and can't commit to something, and um, never do anything because they're always like, "Well, what if something better comes up?" Like, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just yeah. suggesting putting a little extra thought. If it's it, so I've also heard it as like, if it's not a, if it's not a heck yes, then it's a heck no. Like, like all those sevens, six and sevens that we say yes to, like, it really mm -hmm. needs to be a nine or 10 for right. us to say yes to it. Um, because those six and sevens get in the way of nines and tens. Um, so unless you're like super jazzed about it you probably should actually default to a no. Oh, definitely. Rather than a, than a, than a courtesy. Yes. Yeah. And, and too many people fall into that trap of wanting to be nice. And yeah. I fall in that trap sometimes. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you don't want to make them feel bad and saying no, no to whatever, whatever thing is going on. But yeah, um, yeah it turns out you just rather make them feel bad when you sign up to be on the planning committee and then you never show up to a meeting. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, he even says, Hey, you're going to look like a jerk if, uh, yeah, you say yes to something. And it turns out, you know, after the fact or after the deadline's even over, when you didn't do anything, he's like, you're going to look bad, really bad. And so, so he's like, you'll, you'll get way more respect up front just saying, no, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, I have, I, I took the last paragraph of the book. So did you have anything else on the book before we go to takeaways? Otherwise I will fin finish with finish this section with the last paragraph of the book. Cause I thought it was just like, um, I, hit me. I, just some small things, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this is barely like barely touched on in the book is, um, 
like slow productivity. And I, th and he, I know he's going to come out with a new book on this pretty soon. Uh, and it's just, it's like he, he basically would use the like idea of, Hey, would, would it be better to have four days in a row of one hour scheduled for deep work or basically just front load that and just have four hours in a row in one day. And so, cause I, I think this is where he gets into the, uh, the idea of it takes people on average, like 30 minutes to get into deep work, just mm -hmm. to eliminate all that stuff, you know, in your mind and basically just kind of, and when you, when you spread it out over four days, you know, uh, one hour a day, you'd only get two hours of work done, two hours of deep work done mm -hmm. versus three and a half. If you just, you know, time blocked it in mm -hmm. one big session. Yeah. And so I think that is a pretty good idea to use uh mm -hmm. or a pretty good thing to keep in mind for sure slow slow productivity uh can actually be worse yeah trying to trying to fit it into your schedule rather yeah. than making it a priority um yeah and not giving it enough time to actually get into the habit of doing it for sure yeah definitely all right so i will finish it with I will finish this with the last paragraph of the book. Um, and he says the deep life of course is not for everybody. It requires hard work and drastic changes to your habits. For many, there's a comfort in the artificial busyness of rapid email messaging and social media posturing while the deep life, deep life demands that you leave much of that behind. There's also an uneasiness that surrounds any efforts to produce the best thing you're capable of producing as this forces you to confront the possibility that your best is not in parentheses yet that good. It's safer to comment on culture than to step into the Rooseveltian ring and attempt to wrestle it into something better. But if you're willing to sidestep these comforts and fears and instead struggle to deploy your mind to its fullest capacity to create things that matter, then you'll discover, as others have before you, that depth generates a life rich with productivity and meaning. In part one, I quoted writer Winifred, Winifred Gallagher saying, I'll, I'll live the focus life because it's the best kind there is. I agree. So does Bill Gates. And hopefully not now that you finish this book, you agree too. Would you say you agree too? I agree too. How about you? Yeah. Oh yeah. I wouldn't have recommended the book that we read the book <laughs> again otherwise. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't have recommended it for triple the price. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh I think it, it's a very easy read, but it, it packs a big oh, punch. It, it's an academic. It, I think he considers it an academic book, but it does not read, you know, like a dry textbook. It was actually okay. really easy to read. And honestly, it was pretty fun, pretty fun to read. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he mixes like the concepts with a lot of stories and, and like anecdotal, you know, how this applies and examples. Yeah. The, really the, uh, the real stories he, he, he uh, presents are actually, uh, inspiring in some ways. Cause it's like, you know, here's all these people who, who do, who do this or that. And mm -hmm. you know what, you could do it too. If you just tried to implement it in your daily routine. Yeah, absolutely. So what specifically, what actions are you going to be taking away and trying to implement into your life after this? All right. So some, some action steps going forward. Um, first I'm going to, I, I think I would try to at least start with a startup and shutdown ritual when it's time for deep work. I mm -hmm. think that'd be uh, good to get in the mindset uh, mentally. Second, as far as time goes, uh, 
doing a better job and maybe just time blocking. Uh, I know, so, you know, sometimes we have, um, you know, multiple projects that we work on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it'd be good to time block sections where you're just going to absolutely get rid of all, or, you know, put your phone down, face down, other side of the desk, uh, put the white noise on, on the headphones or something, mm -hmm. whatever helps you be distraction free and have two hour time block where you're focusing nothing but what the work is in front of you. I think that's going to mm -hmm. be extremely helpful. And yeah, eliminate all distractions during time block. I think, uh, I think, I think that's, that's the, the big ones for me going forward. What do you have? Uh, for me, um, the, the embracing boredom, I need to get back to that. Oh. I know when I first read this, I did it, I did a good job of that. And then, you know, over time it just kind of faded. Um, so like being more intentional around phone usage, um, it doesn't have to go to the bathroom with me every time or whatever, like, yeah. go on walks without the podcast or whatever. Like I like to listen to podcasts and the second half of my day, a lot of times is podcast, but keeping it to the second half of the day and it not yeah. having to be a constant soundtrack going on in my life. Um, and if that means I need to eliminate some shows I listen to, like, so be it. Yeah. Um, you know, having, having to do the hard work of like actually saying like, okay, am I getting value from this usually is a good exercise to do. And I do it on occasion as well. Um, so that would be one is like, you know, be intentional about phone usage and that includes podcast listening, which is a lot where a lot of my phone time goes. Yeah. Um, as for, and then the other one would be to clean up my shutdown ritual, which is very ad hoc and not, uh, good at all. Um, I think for me setting an alarm like 30 minutes before the day is supposed to end so I can start wrapping things up. And then also having a ritual of recording where I'm at on things so I can continue, but also so I can stop at a reasonable time because it's one of those, uh, I forgot what the specific, it may be uh, Parkinson's law, I think, where uh, a project will take the amount of time you give it. Um, so having that idea of like a fixed work schedule of, oh, I'm only going to work until five or I'm only going to work until four on certain days yeah. or whatever being intentional about that and then also having a shutdown ritual so that I feel comfortable leaving at that time rather than just like letting it go until like I feel like I'm ready to go like right because that sometimes doesn't come very early you know like it sometimes I'm like okay I really need to go back to go back home for dinner um, and then I don't record everything and then like I yeah. find myself thinking about stuff during dinner and so I'm distracted and that's just not fun so yeah uh so shutdown ritual i think is a big one for me um as well as just increasing that boredom and and that um more focused work and not having the podcast on at all times yeah and and i think all, all these things uh you know time blocking you know getting rid of distractions having routine it seems really rigid right mm -hmm. but i think the idea is that it not only helps you professionally during your work day but it's going to help you way more after your work day is over and being intentional with your time you know uh, to enjoy time with your family yeah and your kids and so you're you don't have you know work rattling around in your brain all day so i think this is honestly even more of a more important for you know after work time so mm -hmm. you can you can enjoy your time intentionally with uh with your family for sure yeah and i think it 
to all these tools, it kind of comes back to the craftsman approach to tool selection is identify the core factors that determine success and happiness in your professional and personal life and adopt the tools only if it has positive impacts outweighing the negative impacts, substantially outweighing the negative impacts. So like some of these tools may not work for me because it feels forced or like, I just like, don't like it or it doesn't fit into my current, uh, deal, but that's okay. Like, I don't think the goal is like, I have to, like, like I said before, if I implemented everything I read, like I'd have a 10 hour morning routine and like, that's just not feasible. So like taking the things that work for me and outweigh the, the negatives, um, and really just being clear on what those things are and focusing on them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, with that being said, have you read any other books lately? No, actually, in the last in the last month, this was uh this is actually the only one. But I have a, I have a few that potentially I'll uh, I'll see going forward. I spent my last month actually doing a lot of CPE to get my requirement in. But there you go. I will. Uh, I I have a few. I have a few possibly on deck. Um, you know, maybe a a David Goggins second book never finished. There you go. Um, you know, do, do you ever get Kindle Kindle ads on your on your book? It's funny you bring that up. I do. And right now, for whatever reason, and that reason I am not sure of, the ad I'm getting on Kindle is for Sophia's Underwater Adventure. <laughs> um, and it's All got right. this like mermaid on it. And it's like, okay, looks like a kid's something. Because I yeah, don't know cause... why that came up based off of what I've been reading. Um, uh, the, algorithm, last, the algorithm hit you, man. <laughs> my last five books have been The Last Devil to Die, uh, which is a mystery, Deep Work, The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, which is another mystery, Daisy Jones and the Six, and then Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. So where Sophia's Underwater Adventure <laughs> came from? No I idea. No clue. No clue. None yeah, whatsoever. Recently, I've been seeing some uh, John Grisham books come up, and I'm like, all right, that that actually looks kind of kind of good. I might I might that check would that make out. a lot more sense if John Grisham <laughs> came up. So, uh, you know, maybe uh, you know, I, I do like the occasional uh, legal drama on TV. So maybe The Firm by John Grisham. We'll we'll see. He we'll just see came out with a second one. The second or... one, yeah, actually, the, yeah. the Exchange. I think is I what heard it's it called. wasn't as good as The Firm. Uh, Cal Newport. I listened to his podcast, so he actually just talked about how he read the second one, and he said it wasn't as good as the first one, but all it made him want to do is to go back and read the first one. Well, it was like, maybe I'll add that one to the uh, to the list here, so. <laughs> yeah, so of the books I've read, of the last deep work, obviously, I'd recommend. Uh, I'd recommend The Last Devil to Die, The Thursday Murder Club. That was a good one. Um, that's the fourth one of the Thursday Murder Club uh, books. Um, the Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, I would not recommend. Uh, I did not enjoy it. It was about, it was a murder mystery, but like the, the, uh, the like detective who's not really a detective was a 10 year old girl. And it was just kind of not my thing. Um, and, but it was like an old man's, an old man wrote it, so it's kind of yeah. like a old man stereotype of what a ten-year-old girl is. Oh, so it's sure. just like I just I did not enjoy it. But there's a bunch in that series, so maybe other people will enjoy it. Okay, but I did not. Uh, Daisy Jones and the Six was really good. Um, have you ever heard of that? 
I have not actually. So it's like a, it's a fiction book, but it's written in like the form of like a VH1 behind the music about like a fake rock band from the seventies. Oh, so is uh, it like Spinal Tap or, or something like that? Yeah, kind <laughs> of. It's like a it's like a documentary style, like where they're interviewing, like it's it's like a conversational yeah. interview book. It was very good. It was a, okay. I read it in like a week and a half. It was it was a quick read. Um and then Outlive the Science of Art and Longevity. That was a really long one. Uh I think it was like a four hundred page nonfiction book with a lot of medical terms in it. It was oh. good. Um, but it took me took me a while to finish that one uh but i did end up finishing it and then now i'm reading platonic which is about friendship okay um and then i'm also reading the hero of ages which is the third of uh the mistborn trilogy from uh aforementioned brandon sanderson oh yes villain lair I have uh, uh I, I I know of the uh, Mistborn trilogy and that has been highly recommended to me. Yeah, so I'm on the third one. They're very long books, so I don't like to read them back to back to back. I like to have a little bit of a palate cleanser between sure. uh, a couple, you know, do do a couple of easy ones. Um and then I think on the last podcast I mentioned I was reading about to read The Inheritance Games, which I did and that was good. Um the fourth one of that, so that was a young adult novel. And then I, for a, a reading challenge, I also finished Wicca, Wicked Autumn, which is another murder mystery, which eh, yeah. not not my favorite. Um, and then The Pearl by John Steinbeck, which was a three-hour audiobook, which was... Um, oh, did you ever have sweet. to read that in school? I I could have. It reminded me of what that was about. Uh, they uh, A fisherman finds a big pearl, and then it's just like... Possibly. And yeah. Um, and his son is sick. And so like people want it and it's just kind of this, and then it's like cursed and stuff and whatnot. I don't know. Okay. Um, but it's a three, three hour audio book. It's, um, okay. I've sure. done, I've done something that like, I kind of go back to things that I was like forced to read and see if they were actually good or if I think as an adult, they weren't good. Um, yeah. like animal farm, I think was legitimately a, a, a good book. Um, and, uh, I don't know why, like, I just didn't read anything I, I was supposed to read in high school. So I actually never, we actually never were assigned that animal farm. No, no. We, you know, of course we had pride and prejudice and all that other stuff. So, so, so. your school didn't want to teach you about communism, huh? I guess not. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, but no, I've, I've actually never read animal, animal farm before. And, uh, so I read animal farm. I thought it was really good. I also still think that 17-year-old me really wouldn't have understood Animal oh, Farm yeah. and like communism and stuff. So um so like it was good for me as an adult, but like high school, I don't know. Yeah. I also sure. wasn't a big thinker. Uh I was more I was a self-described oh, it is. Uh, self-described math, math guy. Yeah. Um who like just hated English until I started reading as like a late 20s and uh changed my life. All right. Yeah. And and what what do we have uh, coming up uh, next month? So next we will be reading Your Next 5 Moves by Patrick Bet David. Uh yes. I don't know anything about it. 
other than it's like more of a business strategy book. So Me I'm neither. excited about it. It's not something I've read before. So this will be a so new one. So this, this is going to be new for both of us. It yes. uh, is Master the Art of Business Strategy. And mm-hmm. it is it has great reviews. So hopefully... Um, Where did you hear about it? Because you're the one who uh, picked this one. So I if did. it's terrible, it's your fault. So I, I know... So we had a list of books that were potential prospects. And uh, most of these books are just stuff I've seen you know, online of, you know, recommended books from CEOs or whoever, mm-hmm. or maybe even just, uh, you know, our, our firm used to have kind of a, a quarterly book club gotcha. that they used to have. And that's where most of this list came from. And so Sweet. this one was, so we just did kind of a, uh, I guess more of a personal, uh, self-improvement book. Mm-hmm. And so this one's kind of more of a, um, business. overall b- business strategy book. And so that's why I decided, uh, you know, we'll, change up the pace a little bit sweet well that'll be next um glad you enjoyed deep work yeah uh hopefully uh hopefully you get as much value out of it as i have uh it certainly is one i would say it's one of my foundational books that if anybody's getting into books it'd be one i'd recommend early on definitely and and honestly for anyone going into college this is something i'm going to recommend too for yeah. sure. Hey, read this before you even start. Because yeah. Cal Newport even said the worst college the college students are actually the worst at being students. Yes. True. He actually also has a book called like How to Be a Straight A Student that he wrote when he was a student, I think. Um, but like, yeah. It, yeah. If you can be like kind of good at time management as a college kid, like you're just gonna run laps oh. around everybody. He, he said if college students uh, basically did their job like we like the rest of us did, they would all be fired. Yes. So I, <laughs> I agree. I agree with that 100%. So, so yeah, I'm recommending this book to pretty much anyone starting in the workforce or in college because it would be- Or great. currently in the workforce. Or, or I mean, shoot, it's, I, I hope it's going to change me going forward for sure. Yeah, if you've never heard of time block planning, this is a good way to learn about it. Yeah. All right. Well, see you next time. All right, take care, guys.